0: 3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement, and that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Oh, yay. Alternative news, analysis, That's and current man. affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to late 30am.
1: Only double. Cut your
0: hands. And good morning listeners This is Wednesday Breakfast on the 25th of January I'm Claudia
2: And I'm Sunera
0: So good to be back in the studio
2: Yep, um, once again we're all together finally after going on a bit of a break Yep
0: yeah. And sunara has been hosting the show, doing a fantastic job. I hope so. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's been great listening in while I've been away, having a bit of a break, and good to be back now to to start our regular broadcast.
2: Yeah, I'm uh, really happy to be um, happy to have you again in the studio. Um, so, what do we have for uh, today? Uh, Today's show,
0: yeah. Well, speaking of regular broadcasting, today we've got a bit of a focus on First Nations issues and featuring First Nations voices because, as our listeners um, will well be aware, uh, this week has great significance for First Nations peoples around Australia um, and particularly tomorrow being um, a day of mourning um, for the impacts of colonisation. So tomorrow, three CR will have a, an all-day special broadcast from nine till four, focusing on uh, the voices and the action at the rally that will be taking place in Nam. And we thought we'd uh, precede that today with some stories um, and segments from the community that we work in and live with in in Nam. Yeah, so. We're going to kick off, though, with something else um, that's not related to Australian uh, Indigenous people. Do you want to tell us about that scenario and then we'll hop into our First Nations agenda?
2: Yep. Uh, One of our presenters, Grace, is back today on Wednesday breakfast with an interview with an aerospace engineering uh, professor, uh, Crystal Zhang from RMIT University, to highlight the recent Nepal plane crash, which marked the worst Nepal aviation disaster since 1992, and looking at why Nepal's aviation industry has safety issues.
0: Yeah, what's up next? And then we'll be starting our coverage uh, of First Nations issues. So first up, there will be bringing you some of the action from last Friday's commemorative gathering for Tanah and Moabohina, which took place in Melbourne uh, in the city. Uh, For listeners who might not be aware, Tanah and Moabohina were the first uh, men to be executed in Victoria for having the audacity to resist British colonisation of their lands. So there's a special gathering every year to commemorate that uh, sad event uh, and to celebrate their resilience and resistance. And I think it was the 181st uh, anniversary of that event this year. So we'll be bringing you some of uh, the speeches and some of the voices that uh, were heard there. And then we'll have a, another segment that you've organised, Sonera.
2: Um at about eight o'clock, we'll listen to Robbie Thorpe in conversation with Alistair Thorpe about Treaty for First Nations People in Victoria. And the, and this is uh, from an episode of Bunjil's Fire, which was aired on October last year. But I think it's pretty relevant for this
0: week. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, very, very relevant going forward when there's so much debate about... Um, how treaty fits with a voice to parliament and truth-telling and all those different pieces that uh, all want uh, ultimately um, the right things for justice in this country. We've also got some great music from First Nations Artists too and I think we've got a, a song there from Dave Arden, Sonera. Um, shall we have a listen to that? It's Red, um, Red Desert Man.
2: Yes. Yes we'll go to a song break now and we'll be right back
3: When I was a little boy I would walk with my grandfather When I looked the i would listen to him speak in his I can still see him now when I close my eyes.
2: listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast and that was Red Desert Man by Dave Arden and now we're going to go on to Grace's interview today and Grace is back um on Wednesday Breakfast with an interview with aerospace engineering and aviation professor Crystal Zhang from RMIT University, highlighting the recent Nepal plane crash, which which marked the worst Nepal aviation disaster since 1992, and looking at why Nepal's aviation industry has safety issues. Just a content warning, this segment may disturb some listeners as it discusses sensitive topics, so if you... I want you can tune up for the next 20 minutes.
4: Hi everyone. It's Grace and it's probably been a while since you've heard my voice and it's good to be back. Recently, a Yeti Airlines crashed in Pokhara in Central Nepal, which led to all 72 on board dead. This is considered Nepal's worst aviation disaster since 1992 when 167 died after a Pakistani flight crash while approaching Kathmandu. This poses the question, why does Nepal's aviation industry have a safety issue? I spoke to Associate Professor of Aerospace Engineering and Aviation, Crystal Zhang from RMIT University to understand its
5: cause. Um, Hello, Professor Zhang.
1: Um, Thank you for having me uh, to your program
5: regarding this incident what what do we know so far that happened with this crash
1: um uh Regarding this uh, fatal crash, I don't think we have much information until today in terms of the contributing factors what exactly has caused this kind of uh, fatal uh, crash. Um, However, uh, uh, we know uh, the uh, black box has been retrieved thanks to the effective work of the rescue team. Uh, So the black box contains all the vital information in terms of the uh, communication between the pilots and air traffic controllers and also the flight data of the aircraft. So I believe that the uh, black box has been in the hands of the specialists who specialise in analysing this type of data and hopefully they will have more information to be available to the public and to the aviation safety authorities to understand what exactly has caused this kind of a fatal crash. Um, So uh, apparently the uh, rescue team has been working very, very effectively in in retrieving the, the black box. Uh, So until then, I don't think there is much more information in terms of what exactly has caused this kind of a fatal crash.
5: I see. So hopefully after a month, we will to find out exactly what has happened.
1: Yeah, after a month or 45 days, which is the time, the period given for this uh, interim report to be released. So still not the conclusive information to determine what exactly has caused the uh, crash. So it is likely the fundamental information about the aircraft, about the crew. Um, So it's still some factual information, I would say. So it is still too early. Uh, Analyzing the data can be lengthy, Um, you know, gathering all the information together from different resources, you know, interviewing all the witnesses, talking to all different people involved in this flight operation can be a lengthy process because it is not just the pilots who are involved in the operation of the aircraft, all those air traffic controllers. There are many other people who are involved in planning the flight, uh, you know, in the weather uh, um, forecast, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera, uh, the rescue team. So it's quite some people to be involved.
5: Yes, that's true and um, obviously with this crash that happened, um, we, I think it's, I think it's can, it can be said that there's been quite many incidents that uh, NAPOL has been having with the aviation industry in, in regards to the safety issues and also, uh, as you have mentioned in your article via the conversation, there's been recorded at least 350 casualties since um, 2000, the year 2000, so why does NAPOL have this safety issue?
1: Mm. Um um I think Nepal is a typical uh, developing country in Asia-Pacific like any other uh, developing countries like uh, Thailand, like, um, you know, even Malaysia or, you know, uh, all those developing countries in Asia-Pacific, which is experiencing, uh, you know, this rapid economic growth in the past two to three decades. So aviation definitely is one of those industries that have experienced this uh, rapid growth. So the air air travel demand in Nepal has been um, uh, booming in the past two to three years, and the government also has liberalized the aviation industry. Uh, So by liberalizing the industry, we mean that the government encourages uh, private investment into the sector and also encourages uh, competition. Um, of the sector, so that really means um, you know it allows to to uh, to set up more airlines with the private investments, and you know more airports have been uh, constructed or expanded. Uh, having said that, this kind of expansion or the growth of air travel demand put pressure, unprecedented pressure. On the infrastructure uh, and also the resources. The resources could include the financial resources, but also the human resources. So where do the pilot come from? Where do all the technicians, the maintenance engineers come from? They all need time to be trained, to be qualified, you know, to operate and uh, to do the job. So when you suddenly have so many airlines, you know, it's a kind of a stretch of all all these people, so it's it's likely there is a kind of a, a compromise of the safety between the safety standards upholding the very high standard, the safety standards and the commercial return. If you are, um, you know financial um, profits driven, you want to satisfy all the travel demand to make money, then you know the upholding of the very high the safety standards could be compromised. Um, so ne- Nepal, I would say, perhaps is one of those typical developing Asia-Pacific countries that is experiencing this kind of uh, development, but the safety could be. Could be compromised, resulting in some uh, more accident safety hazards or uh, fatal crashes. Um, but having said that, Nepal is not the only country that has experienced this. Other developing countries have gone through the similar experience. So hopefully, some good lessons would be learned by other countries who are going through this kind of a process. I see.
5: And um, Nepal, or from what we can usually know, is that I think if many of, of our listeners do know about, uh, have heard about the country Nepal, they do know that it is actually the home to one of the uh, tallest mountains in the world. For example, Mount Everest, and it's situated between India and China. So obviously, we, it's basically surrounded by a mountainous region, and therefore, it, it's expected to have weather conditions uh, based on what whatever's happening on the mountain. So is that usually one of the safety issues for Nepal and the, for the industry for airplanes and the helicopters?
1: Um I I think the answer is yes and no. Yes, it means uh the weather conditions could be challenging for airline operation. The mountainous uh, landscape could be challenging for airline operation. But it is not, um, you know, the sole uh, contributing factor. Or uh, there is definitely a correlation between the landscape and the uh, accident, etc., etc. Um, so that's. The reason that I would say it is no, it is really still because of um, you know the uh, the operation environment, but the decision making of the pilots, the competency of the pilots, or all the human resources, all those professionals that are involved in the whole process of the uh, aircraft operating. Because we know that you know for the aircraft to be ready, um, you know for taking off, we need engineers, maintenance engineers to ensure that the aircraft, all the parts have been properly checked, you know, the aircraft is what we call airworthiness. You know, it's like you're driving a car, you have to check your car is ready, uh, you know, is it roadworthy to be able to drive? You know, you don't want to have any faulty parts or any mm-hmm. kind of abnormal um, conditions of the car. So it's the same to the aircraft. So the aircraft apparently needs to be airworthy. Um, the second, again, of course, you know, are the very critical people who are operating the aircraft and that is the pilots. So they are definitely trained up to the highest standards. I know that quite some of the Japanese pilots are trained in America, and they have to receive the license from the Federal Administration of uh, of uh, Federal Aviation Administration of America FAA. So that is very very high standards, and it is um, you know honored by all the other civil aviation authorities of the. Of the other countries. So so I think it's a kind of a system work, systemic work of the whole aviation sector to ensure that the safety is upheld to the highest standard. So that would include all the um, service providers or players throughout the supply chain. I
5: see. And uh, so uh, do we know so far that with the that recent Nepal crash, definitely the weather definitely is not going to be one of the reasons why that the, the thing happened?
1: Um, people can have that kind of a presumption uh, based mm-hmm. on the video uh, you know available on the social media side people see a very clear beautiful blue skies it seems like there is no heavy rain there is no fog or fog the visibility is very good etc et so people can have that kind of a presumption that the weather conditions can be excluded but i think again at this stage um you know nothing is official, so it's better not to jump to that conclusion that weather condition is not one of the contributing factors. I think it's it's more um, appropriate and reasonable for us to be cautious to jump to the conclusion as to what exactly has contributed to uh, the fatal crash. I see. All right. Understood.
5: And- You've also mentioned uh, in another part of uh, your article that you, uh, for the, for Naples airport they usually have shorter runways because of their mountainous region and it's, so they only accommodate uh, turboprop powered regional aircraft and so they can't accommodate like jetliners as such. so and that's why they have a variety of aircrafts that are under their feet, as you have said um, which, but it pre- uh, it presents potential safety hazards. so why is why is that the case?
1: Uh, I don't think having a variety of uh, type of aircraft in the fleet uh, would present a safety hazard. It is just the constraints that the airline has, um, because of the shorter runway, the the shorter the runway, uh, the smaller the aircraft has to be, uh, to be used for the operation of that airport. For this particular um, airport, um, where the uh, fatal crash uh, happened, it is uh, in aviation it is called the four D category aircraft. The, uh, Airport, which means that this airport allows um, the takeoff and the landing of Boeing seven three seven. So this airport, which Um, you know, has the capacity, the capability of handling Boeing 737 and also all those smaller aircraft. So generally speaking, speaking, smaller aircraft can only fly to a smaller regional airport where the uh, runway is shorter. But it doesn't mean that it causes or gives rise to any kind of a safety hazard. It's not at all. Mm, I see and
5: um does the age of the aircraft also contribute to uh potential safety hazards is that is that usually the thing for um, machines as well
1: again there is no such a definite relationship between the age of the aircraft and the uh, crash uh even though we say um you know, uh, if you uh, manage it well, if it is very well maintained, it's still safe aircraft to fly. Uh, Having said that, of course, airline would like to phase out the aged aircraft because it could be more fuel, uh, you know, consumption is not necessarily cost effective. Um, So it might have more faulty parts or spare parts, uh, you know, so it, the maintenance cost could be uh, very high, that also means operational cost can be very high and um, but there is no such a kind of uh um definite correlation to say only because the aircraft is old then it you know it's definitely it gives rise to safety hazard I
5: see i think we can kind of put this in the picture in the cars as well even if after 20 years of using a car as long as well maintained it can still be used
1: exactly exactly because there are other factors that uh, would affect you know um it is that specific scenario, you know, that circumstances could be the driver's own problems, it could be the road conditions, could be the weather, could be all other factors that, you know, we still cannot name yet at this Mm -hmm. stage. So I think we have to wait until the uh, investigation uh, report um, to be released. I
5: see, understood. Mm. And all right, so uh, Professor Zhang,
1: we don't have uh,
5: too much of time left, but I just want to ask you a final question. Uh, how has the Nepal aviation industry tried to improve its facilities and making sure safety is there for the passengers and their staff?
1: Yes, absolutely. I think, um, you know, Nepal is a very, very uh, fascinating country. It attracts a lot of visitors, adventures. So tourism industry is definitely one of the industries that contributes to its economic development and then air transport can is part of the tourism industry but also contributes to um, you know broadly the economic development to the logistics okay and so safety is definitely uh, the priority that the industry has been uh, uh, given in the past two to three years two two to three decades even though there are some accidents or um, you know safety issues within the system. Um, So the government apparently has uh, stepped up its efforts to enhance the safety performance. So it has uh, quite a few um, safety related projects going on. It has air transport, a safety enhancement program uh, sponsored by international community and also, um, you know, it's really has developed quite some policies, uh, regulations, uh, operational manuals. Um, uh, they are all in place and it Really encourage the positive safety culture across the safety the aviation sector. So, for what it has been achieved is uh, recognized by the Civil International Civil uh, International Civil Aviation Organization, uh, the ICAO, the United Nations uh, agency responsible for global aviation industry, stipulating all the safety standards. So, Nepal's efforts have been recognised by IKO in 2018 for the successful implementation of uh, safety management system and improvement of its capability um, to um, enhance the oversight capability of the whole sector. So I'm sure that the things will improve. So um, Nepal is definitely a country that is worth visiting and the safety uh, will be improved for sure.
5: I see. Yeah, so hopefully um, as the country tries to uh, help to improve, continue to improve the yeah, industry and um, let's hope people don't be too afraid that because of such things that they don't want to visit such a beautiful country. Okay. All right. so uh, thank you so much, Professor Zhang, for your time.
1: Okay. My pleasure. Thank you very much.
4: That was Aerospace Engineering and Aviation Associate Professor Crystal Zhang from RMIT University, speaking about Nepal's aviation industry safety issue in light of the recent Nepal plane crash. At the moment, authorities are still finding out the cause of the crash and no final answers can be made just yet. Now I'll be passing back to Claudia and Sunara.
2: Thank you, Grace, for that. And that was her speaking with Professor Crystal Zhang. If this story has caused you any distress, you can call Lifeline on 131114. We'll be right back after a short break. Invasion Day Rally Treaty before voice. Thursday, the 26th of January, at 11am on the steps of Parliament House. A 3CR supporter.
6: Should I take your hand? Would you help me understand? I'm searching for the truth there in the dark. No, I don't know, but there's a yearning in my heart. And it speaks to me if I'm awake or sleeping. Mm-hmm. I've been waiting for some time to feel your good heart feeling now been hurting for a past I cannot change. I'm not looking for anyone to blame. So just walk beside me to a place where we'll be free. The sun and through the rain we will travel, my dear friend, seeing all those things we never saw before, and now we understand each other so much more. Cause if we're young and free, then we need harmony. If we're young and free Then we need hope.
0: that was Nancy Bates with In This Together. Nancy Bates is a proud Bakindji woman from New South Wales, uh, mentored by Archie Roach and uh, believed to be one of the the best singer-songwriters in Australia today. One to watch. Beautiful song. We're back on Wednesday Breakfast. It's the 25th of January 2023. You're here with Claudia and Sonera, And we just heard from Grace about the airline tragedy in Nepal. And now we're going to head into our stories about First Nations resistance as we come into uh, Invasion Day tomorrow. So we're going to be revisiting the Tanaminawe and Morborhina commemorative event, which took place in Nam on Friday, January the 20th. Three CR's Joe Toscano kicked off the event, explaining why we come together to commemorate Tannumindaway and Morbohina annually on this day, and the significance of meeting on the corner of Victoria Street and Franklin Street, Melbourne. So we're going to hear Joe's uh, historical information, and then that will be followed by an address by Boon Wurrung Elder Janet Galpin. So first, here's Joe.
7: Historically, 183 years ago, the old Melbourne jail was being built. This was the highest point in the new city of uh, the new town of Melbourne. Uh, It was a great day of festivity. There wasn't 100 people here, there was over 5,000 people here, black and white. Who'd come to witness the execution, the public execution of and Morbohina? What was their crime? They were the survivors of a far of a 33-year war in Tasmania between the colonists from 1803 to 1833 or 1835, which resulted in the deaths of almost 99% of the indigenous population. 332 survivors were taken to Flinders Island. I think it was in 1836 and within three years the numbers had been reduced to 82. 17 of those people were brought across to Melbourne by Augustus Robertson on behalf of the Victorian settlers to civilise the Victorian Blacks. Uh, after a few years, this band of five went into the Mornington Peninsula and up around Mount and the Dandenong Rangers and were involved in a campaign of armed resistance against colonisation, hoping that others would join them. Other Victorian Aboriginal people would join them, but unfortunately nobody joined them. And on the 20th of January 1841, they were captured. Well, miraculously, nobody, none of the five died. Uh, they were actually camped, and uh, I think it was about 100, 110 soldiers, police, squatters fired into the camp, and they missed everybody. Um, they were taken to Melbourne in chains, tried just before Christmas in 1841. Uh, they were, uh, the two men were found guilty, and uh, the three women were exonerated and uh Planabina, and uh Putirana were exorinated. Now most Australians know about know more about North American Indian history than they know about our own history. Now the Tanaminua Morbohina Commemoration Committee has three unfinished businesses which we'd like to finish. One, we are still in the business of trying to convince the Melbourne City Council and the state government to do an ultrasound examination of the area where we think Tunnaminawe and Bohina are buried. Also, three European bush rangers are also buried there uh, Jeps, uh, Ellis, and Fogarty. And also, another Aboriginal man who was executed here on this very spot five months later, Agaputra, from. Uh, Warrnambool, he was accused of murdering a, a settler who was very well known for uh, murdering Aboriginal men and raping Aboriginal women, although witnesses of these trials told the court that he was 100 kilometres away from the scene of the crime and he was murdered here also he was executed here also Now, has people come up to me they say, well this should be something that should be This commemoration should be something that should occur around Australia and we, for a number of years, have thought of this day, the 25th of January, as Aboriginal and Islander Freedom Fighters Day. Every inch of this land is soaked in the blood of tens of thousands of men, women and children who died resisting colonisation and who continue to die as the direct result of colonisation. And why do we think the 20th of January should be that day? Because this wasn't one of those silent massacres carried out by squatters or carried out by convicts or carried out by police or carried out by the armed forces. It wasn't the mass poisonings which occurred or the germ warfare which was used as far as smallpox encrusted uh, blankets. This was a direct response by the state. The state said to Aboriginal people, if you resist colonisation, this is what will happen to you. And Judge Willis, the Supreme Court judge, who handed down the sentence said, this is a sentence which should engender terror in the hearts of Aboriginal people, terror. And that's what it was about. So this is a due, this is why we think the 25th of January. This was the state's response.
0: And that was Joe Toscano speaking at last Friday's event in Nam commemorating Tuna Way and Mooborheena, the first men executed in Victoria for resisting British colonisation of their lands. We're now going to hear from Boon Wurrung elder Janet Galpin, who was also at the event and gave the welcome to country. It's a
8: beautiful day, so thank you all for coming. So Wominjika, Waminjika is the Bunwarang language word for come with purpose. And all of you here today, you've all come with purpose to this commemoration to remember Tuna away and Mauboy Hina who were hanged here on this very spot for daring to shoot two white men. This hanging took place at a time when it was common knowledge and completely accepted for white people to openly kill and slaughter our people, our ancestors. In fact, it was government sanctioned. And there's no history that I know of in that time where there was a white man who was reprimanded, killed, put in jail for killing a black. It's something that just didn't happen. So I'm not being disrespectful in saying white and black, but speaking to you in the way that people spoke and thought in those days. And I really hate to say this, but there are today people in our society who still speak and think in those terms. The scourge of our society that is still ongoing today is blatant racism. The Tuna Mennawaya Malboyina Commemoration Committee their commitment to have an annual commemoration for these young men was instigated at the 2007 commemoration and has been led by Joseph Toscano ever since. And today we're very proud to be here. I think the 180th, 183. I did my sums very badly, so for the 183rd. Ah, oh, okay. Alright, 181st commemoration. So, thank you, Joseph, and everybody who has worked to continue this tradition. And it's my purpose here today to deliver a welcome to country on behalf of the Bunwurang, who are the custodians of their country, which extends from the Wilson's Promontory all the way around both of our bays to the mouth of the Werribee River in the west. So, that would be Murren, which is um, now I've lost. We've got Port Phillip and Western Port. Western Port is Murren and Port Phillip Nam. I didn't write this down, so I'm trying to adhere to my script. So, those both beautiful bays are all on our country. So, when you're walking or travelling around our country, you've been welcomed by us for all of your journeys. And I'm here today representing Nawi, Dr Carolyn Briggs, AM, the elder of the Boon Wurrung and the Yarlick at Wurlam clan, who is my cousin. And I would like to pay my respect to all of our ancestors, including our Irish and English ancestors. And we also pay our respect today to the Wurundjeri of the Woi Wurrung, with whom we share common boundaries throughout our lands and including this city where we are here today. So as a representative and family member of the Boon Melbourne's first people, I'm pleased to welcome you all here. We are especially pleased to recognise the commitment that you've all made here today in paying respect to the spirit of this land and to its first peoples. Through this, you have shown the willingness to honour sacred ground. And we also ask that you recognise and celebrate that First Nations people have occupied and cared for this continent for well over 65,000 years. And we, are, we were here then and we're still here today. So we invite all Australians to embrace the ancient history of this country. A history which dates back thousands of generations and that includes the Bunwarang and the Wurundjeri of the Woiwurrung, the original inhabitants of this country that we are on today. And our people still live and work on country, which is a wonderful thing. We are spiritually and culturally connected to this country. This country is in our DNA and that is why connection to country is so important to our First Peoples and the very first footprints on this continent were those belonging to our First Peoples. So today as I stand here before you, the Boon are once again fighting for their country in the federal court. But we say to these people that we're arguing with in the court that you may have a rap over our country but we say that you are not the traditional owners and you are not the custodians of this country. And I may have digressed a bit from the reasons why we are here today, but Joseph has given us quite an amount of the history and it's such a bigger history that you can actually convey um, in the, the short time that we get to speak. But today we're here for the injustice that was served upon these two men, Tanaminiwe and Malboyhina, and also for the injustices that are still perpetuated today against our people. So, as I said earlier, the word welcome in Bunwarang is Wuminjika, and it translates also to come with purpose. And it's a contract between the people, as the custodians of this land, and yourselves. To ensure that our laws are adhered to and to guarantee safe passage for those who ask, according to tradition, this land has always been protected by our creator Bunjil, who travels as an eagle, and our waterways are protected by Bunwar, who travels as a crow. Bunjil taught the Bunwarung to always welcome guests, but he always required the Bunwarung to ask all visitors to make two promises. I ask of you all here today. And the first one is to obey the laws of Bunjil. And the second, to not harm the children of this beautiful land. And this commitment was usually made by the exchange of a small bow of leaves being dipped into the waters and the spoken words, Wominjika. Thank you everyone and thank you,
0: Joseph. And that was Boomerang Elder Janet Galpin who gave the welcome to country at the Way and Morbor Hina commemorative event in Nam on Friday. And before that, we heard Joe Toscano from 3CR giving us some background to that important historical event. You're listening to Wednesday Breakfast, the 25th of January, 2023 with Sonera and Claudia.
6: Well, tell us what to do they
8: push
9: us around And then they have the goal To go and rip off the ground Join 3CR from 9am to 4pm on Thursday the 26th of January for our annual Invasion Day broadcast. 3CR's First Nation presenters will be broadcasting live from the Stop the War, Treaty Before Voice rally and march in Melbourne. We'll be bringing you black and deadly music news and views from activists across the continent, with a grassroots politics that you won't find anywhere else, as we discuss genocide, sovereignty, treaty, pay the rent, death in custody, truth and justice, and the law of the land. So keep tuned, FreeCR, on Thursday, the 26th of January, 2023.
0: that was Kira Volu with Stuck in the System. I hope you enjoyed that song. Kira is a proud Wurangu Kokotha woman who lives in Alice Springs. She's been writing and performing music for about 11 years. It's nice to uh, share a diversity of First Nations music and song writing today on our program. So you're listening to Wednesday Breakfast and we've been Talking about and hearing the voices of First Nations people this morning, um, so we want to give out some of the details for the Invasion Day events taking place in Nam. There are events taking place all around Australia tomorrow, uh, but our listener base is is local, so let's uh, talk about what's happening in Melbourne, Nam. So the annual Invasion Day protest will begin at eleven a.m at the Victorian Parliament House, Steps in Spring Street. It's tomorrow, January 26th at 11am. The 3CR team will be on-site broadcasting live from the event. So if you can't get along for any reason, um, you can tune in at home or wherever you are and hear the speeches from the rally that way. Um, And there'll also be uh, special programming from 9 till 4 tomorrow Uh, So you can catch up with voices of grassroots activists speaking around Australia, as well as uh, other Black and Deadly content and music. If you're interested in checking out the schedule for tomorrow's uh, 3CR program, you can have a look at that on the homepage at 3cr.org.au. And there's another event on also if you're wanting to participate in a different way, a group called Our Songlines, an Aboriginal-owned and woman-led organisation, is holding an event called Our Survival Day, and that will be held on Boomerang Country in Mount Martha, uh, kicking off at about 12 noon at a venue called The Briars in Mount Martha. Everyone is welcome, and you'll be able to enjoy First Nations music, bush foods, picnics, cultural workshops and dancing with artists such as Mitch Tambo, Dallas Woods and Too Lovely there as well. Uh, So you can find out more about that at www.oursurvivalday or oneword.com. Okay, we're going to go for a little bit of a break to hear some community service announcements relating to some other issues that are going on and then we're going to come back and hear a conversation between Robbie Thorpe and Robbie's nephew, Alistair Thorpe, about treaty. Peru's Indigenous president has been overthrown. Support the uprising to protect land and water and fight for a new Peru. Come to our fundraiser, Peruvian food, music and culture, featuring Melbourne's own Amazonian cumbia band, Chicha Yeye. Lockdown Studios, 329 Johnson Street, Abbotsford, Saturday, 4th of February at 8pm. Find us on Facebook. Search Latin Revolution Peru. El momento es ahora.
8: A 3CR supporter. I know fire. I know that burning embers from bushfires can travel 30 kilometres, lighting new fires in seconds, like the one that burnt my house down. I know extreme fire danger ratings or above aren't announced often, but when they are... You need to be ready. Check the Vic Emergency app daily and be prepared to leave early. How well do you know fire? Plan, act, survive. Go to emergency.vic.gov.au.
0: Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. St Kilda Festival is back in 2023 with two days of summer fun, Saturday 18th and Sunday 19th of February. Saturday kicks off with a celebration of First Peoples artists including Christine Anu, Jem Cassadaly, Dean Brady and more. On Sunday, the party takes to the St Kilda streets with Hoodoo gurus, Yothu Yindi, Confidence Man and heaps more. Free and all ages, see the program at stkildafestival.com.au St Kilda Festival is a 3CR supporter.
2: You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast with Sinera and Claudia. Now we're going to hear a conversation between Robbie Thorpe, also known as Manjil Ni, and their nephew Alistair Thorpe about treaty for Indigenous Australians and what that could look like in Victoria and Indigenous activism over time. This is the first 20 minutes of the conversation, and you can listen to the full 50 minute conversation on Bunjals Fire at 3CR's website.
9: I'll say uh, good morning to Alistair. Morning up. And uh, thank you for coming in, Raz. Thank you. So, uh, where are we standing at the moment? Like, there's a lot of issues for me, um, and the rest of the country's talking about a a voice in Mm. the Parliament as, like, the primary thrust of things. But Victoria's gone in a different direction, do you think?
10: Yep. Well, we've got an opportunity here. So we've probably progressed those areas in our own way, from our own position. Yeah, so, you know, we're we're talking treaty now. Well, I I
9: should introduce you probably because, you you know, um, you're my my oldest brother's son. And um, we spent a lot of time together, uh, Northland Secondary College, where... Uh, you, well, Shakespeare's, I see you've got the t-shirt on there, yeah, Fight for Survival, an incredible journey in itself, mm. would have been formative in terms of your where you stand and what your perspectives are in, on this, yeah. in this place, so it's really good to see you involved mm. with the treaty assembly, and one of the best things for me is to see the young people starting to really learn about the, the true history of this country. Yeah. That's one of, the, one of the main reasons I support the idea of a treaty assembly. I'm, I've got a few questions in regards to the legitimacy, the validity, and, and the, what sort of treaty it would be. Is it a, a domestic thing or is it an international one? Yeah. And that, I think that's the main point for me. To question is, you know, is it a, an international legal standard or is it a, a domestic thing for treaty business
10: in Victoria? Well, it's done with the state, so it's domestic. But all of those areas we talk about, and what I've learnt from you, Uncle Rob, over the years around sovereignty and self determination, and our rights are embedded in the process. So, I think it's a powerful tool for us at this time in this political landscape to use. And and I I love how you, you know, you talked about our history together, because I learn a lot from you and your politics and. You know, in the lounge room with Nan and with my uncles and aunties, and my old man. So, I think, really today, we've got the opportunity from all of those years of um, struggle and activism, and and it's culminated in this now. And I think, even talking about the national agenda, I think we forced a treaty conversation here in Victoria, and it's and it's forcing that conversation again in the federal politics so we can't let it go we can't let this opportunity go and we've got to push the issue
9: yeah so we've been always at the forefront uh victorian aboriginal people in terms of the struggle we haven't fared very well but you know we've done hard yards and um suffered a lot lost Mm. a lot Mm. Uh, i don't really see how native titles been effective for us and you know there's there's lots of questions about these corporate entities Mm. You know, I I believe they all misrepresent us and it's can never work until you know there's you know there's proper recognition of our people and you know for me when you have a treaty you need to end the hostilities first before you can actually sit down and talk about negotiations so you know I'm just thinking that where is that in terms mm. of the process because there's a, a, still yeah. a lot of grief there's still a lot of um mm. you know, trauma for aboriginal people is that going to be uh in some way addressed before we sit down and talk, because there's issues called uh, duress and undue influence mm-hmm. and uh, many other things that, uh, you know, we don't want to be arguing about the process, the treaty process for mm. the next hundred years. Yep. I mean, you have a look at Waitangi Treaty. They're always arguing about the interpretation, so mm. very really important to get it right.
10: Yeah. Well, I think the Europe Justice Commission, that's a very important part Of this whole process you know and that's come out of the assembly we instigated that because we understood we have to do that we have to actually resolve a lot of these issues and put the spotlight on them and i think that's going to be a huge negotiating tool for us as we go forward in the treaty process to understand the impact of colonization here and to to actually make the state accountable for that as well as others that are involved so I really think our people need to get on board and tell the story. Like, right now, the Europe Commission have opened up submission process for any Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander person to submit. So I think if you've got family stories, you need to put them in because this is how we address it. We've got to actually know what happened and then we talk about it in a treaty. So,
9: and so is it just for any Aboriginal person? And, you know, like, I'm one of, you know what connection do the people from the Northern Territory have to this country? Are they mm. bloodlined back to the Territory? Is it their business, the treaty business? So why would they be involved? And why would mm. corporate bodies be involved if you know, they don't represent sovereignty? And, and, and you know, they're, they're pretty serious questions for me. Mm. And uh, you know, over the years, I've seen a lot of misrepresentation in terms of the, the corporations. Going back to, I think it would be about 1986, same time the Australia Act came in, Mm. It was a different, whole, different law laid down on Aboriginal people at that time. So, you know, we had Atsic, native title, reconciliation all at the same time. Yeah, and, and up to that point of time, it was the communities doing the fighting mm. on their own without any support of the state or anybody else. And all of a sudden, since uh, I think the writing was on the wall back then, that they had to do something about the idea of terra and allison, mm-hmm.
11: you know,
9: mm. which underpinned their entire society. here. Those things were going to fall, so yeah, they, they sort of manoeuvred themselves in the position. So I'm still thinking about it. That's why there's, it's important for an international mm-hmm. uh, f- scrutiny, at least, over this process, to give it credibility. Are, are They They wouldn't be keen to have that, would they? But well, what they demanded everywhere else in the world, like places like Ukraine and mm-hmm. any other conflict zone in the world, Australia's always got them open in their mouth, moralising about those issues, but they won't do it in their own backyard.
10: Well, I think this doesn't shut that down. These tools that we've got now doesn't close that door, and if there's traditional owner groups that feel they need to have that international scrutiny, I think they're well within their rights to pursue it within this process. So it might challenge the way these structures have been set up, but I don't think that um, it's not possible. So (laughs) there's a monitoring part of this framework the treaty authority has been set up to actually administer yeah tell
9: me a little bit more so, about that because i'm uh, yeah we've got a, a true commission a treaty authority and a treaty assembly it's it's getting a bit uh, top heavy bureaucratic for me and and uh, uh, uh people taking these
10: jobs are also for professional
9: non-aboriginal peoples
10: you know, well, uh, we're leading it like the bottom line is we need more people to be part of it okay and they need to stand up and we need community people to take up these positions um, all the significant roles are Aboriginal people. Okay, so it's controlled by us. Like, don't get that wrong. No, oh, that's good. I, point I'm point. on the assembly, and I can tell you now, we run that show. That's the full assembly. It's a collective voice, and we have our ups and downs with discussion. Like, we have an honest debate. Yeah, I'm good. You know, point. that's what it's about. Absolutely. So there's no, um, you know, that's part of. There's know, nothing off the table. Nothing table. is off the table, and you can't do any more than that. Either. And we've got a lot of the the key people in the room that have been elected or nominated by their groups to actually take this forward. So I think we're in a really strong position. But we do have the treaty authority coming up. We need to put our people in there. We do have the self-determination fund. There's going to be roles there for our people to be part of that. So I know like we are creating a lot of the institutions that is going to help run this whole process. But at the end of the day, it's our people that will control that. They're our, our uh,
9: institutions.
10: And one yeah. of the hardest things is that convincing people, you know, that these are our and taking ownership. And, and that's our job now in the next six to eight months before the next election for the Assembly to, you know, give better understanding about these mechanisms and how we can be part of them. We've got to vote. You've got to be... You've got to contribute, you've got to participate and choose the people that we need in these positions.
9: That's if we're looking for a solution, right? Mm. We're looking for a solution. A yep. treaty says that it's a peacemaking instrument. Yeah. And it creates a, you know, for me, a, a treaty would create a, a basis of coexistence. You know, it's something that you do when you first come to someone else's country. Mm. And the acknowledgement of customary law is also very much part of that. So, you know, how do we progress it in a way that's going to be beneficial? Not just Aboriginal people, but, the, you know, it's, we've got to benefit this planet. You know, I'm always mm. thinking about the welfare of the environment. At the end of the day, that's the, that's where it's at. doesn't matter who you are. If you've if you, if you got no land, if your land destroyed, you, mm. we're, we're all finished. So we need to protect it. And um, a treaty would do that for me. A, a, a treaty would acknowledge our sovereignty, basically, if we manage this the right way. And, you know, how much weight do they forward to Aboriginal people in terms of the, their law here? Shouldn't that be the, one of the first things, acknowledge the customary law?
10: Well, one of the things we did when we... Because, you know, this has been built from the ground up by the Assembly members. A, first ra- a rare occasion. Yeah. And I'd like to say it, it went through pretty much without amendment through the Parliament. So it's a powerful document that's been created by us I think everybody needs to download it and have a look at it. It's on our website. Look at the framework. What's that called? So it's the Treaty Negotiation Framework. It just got signed off on last week. And Aboriginal Law, Law and Cultural Authority is embedded in it. Okay. It's a tool, right? It's up to us how we, we determine what that is, what it looks like for each nation. So that's indisputable. Okay, in I this have process. To, we'll have to get a
9: copy of that because that's where it's, it's really right are. in there. Right? And it's,
10: okay. so I'll tell you right now, it's 2.7, 2.8 in the framework, and it's right up the front. And it's embedded throughout. The treaty authority will have to consider that and acknowledge that in the process. They're going to be the ones that will rule on that. So they've got a really important role to play, and that treaty authority will, will be all Aboriginal people. So, and we'll be appointing those into that position too, you know, in a joint process with the state, but it's all going to be determined by Aboriginal people.
9: Well, what I've noticed is the, the, the treaty uh, initially came from grassroots Aboriginal people. It wasn't the, wasn't the corporations per se. And, you know, and probably one of the reasons why we're calling for a treaty is because of the, uh, you know, how we're fared in terms of the, the, the corporate representation and how that's you know, neglected our people and, left, and created this gap you know, I, I sort of point the finger at them, and, and you know, this is what's happened. And so, the call for treaty has come from the grassroots and not the, the organisation. I just want to throw that out there. It's a it's the truth, too. It's, yeah. You can see that the corporations are all of a sudden teaching themselves oh, what's a treaty? I might go and learn about what a treaty is. Because that's, you know, it did change there and mm. at that time, and yeah. it caught them off guard. And they really weren't thinking about what a treaty process would be, which is totally fundamental to me. You know, it's it's part of law itself. Mm. You know, uh, law and order. They all talk law and order, but I think um, it's that's an important thing to remember that uh, this came from the community. Mm. So how do they access or be a part of this process in a, in a real way when it's you know, it's all the business is done in the organisations and they've got control of the resources. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm just thinking uh, that w- we should have places to do ceremony in our mm-hmm. own country, yeah. particularly around this this issue, treaty. You know, like we could have a, a place for Bunjil, we could have a place for Buren, mm-hmm. in Wanjul, all these places. We all identify under those sort of in a way. It's a mm-hmm. the structure there already. So we had a place for healing and... Um, ceremony where we could do this business in our own realm mm-hmm. under our own law mm-hmm. and it, it needs to be a, a, a precursor to anything else because otherwise we haven't got we aren't able to meet and participate in a way that we would want to if you yeah. know what i mean I mm. making sense there? yeah yep so is there I've any chance that we can get a bit of uh, a for ceremony straight up so we can actually create these sites this is where the, the treaty under Bunjil happened and the, the mm. embryonics all of that happened. It's a space that we could control. We could have our fire. We could have our elders sitting. Mm-hmm. And it's um, how our law worked and, and how our law sits in with this other part, what's happened now, mm. and how we can come to a, an agreement. And I think that's where a treaty should be signed at the end of the day, mm-hmm. it, it, around that fire.
10: Yeah. I think there's definitely things we can push to say, is the state acting in good faith? Um, do you are you going to be real about this? What's what's really on the table? So there are definitely things that we can actually call for and um, talk about and discuss. But going back to the point about the treaty conversation where it shifted, it definitely was a push by the community, and I think it shows you the power of our people when we speak and when we actually participate and we we can change a process if it needs to change. So this is why. With this conversation, change the treaty. Now we need to understand the opportunity we've got, yeah, to grab it.
9: It's sort of, um, I don't know how to describe it. It's just freaky that we're in this situation today. It's the real one. The world's talking about war, (laughs) and poor old Blackwell Australia, we're talking about peace. (laughs) Finally, (laughs) it's the opposite. You know, we're at war the whole time, and now Mm. the world's gone that way, and we're we're talking about a peace arrangement. And I think that. We know what we're talking about when we talk about peace, right? We've got an in- incredible uh, history and experience, our people. And mm. we know all these things. We've been through those processes. Mm. So it's. I think it's really important that we're talking about the, pre- the, tr- the peace process right mm. now. And I think the whole world can take a leaf out of our book. If anyone suffered, and mm. we've suffered, and we've lost a lot, but we're still, mm. we've still got that um, deadliness about us
10: mm. and love. <laughs> Well, it's a hundred-year conversation, eh, really, treaty. It's not... Well, it's hundred. Our long
9: hundred. Batman.
10: Yeah. Well, so, you know, it's taken this long for us to even get it to this point in one state. So... Uh,
9: Against all odds, too. It wasn't, the, uh, it wasn't where the we're all flowing. We're going hmm. going down the corporation yeah. road. Yeah. And um, yet it's come back to the treaty. Um, I reckon it also... an opportunity there.
10: It highlights the actual limitations of native title and and the failure of that to deliver any outcomes, right? So even though we've got these groups that have been, you know, established, which is really important, we need to have those things to help give us a base. But now the agenda's changed because obviously those things didn't address all the injustice and they were limited and, and it was designed that way and changed, you know, we know that. We know the political history of native title. So now with a treaty conversation, everything's back on the table. Yeah, right? I agree. Everything yeah. is on the table. It's, it's actually in here in the framework that there's no limits. So if you're part of a traditional owner group, you need to actually start mobilising your family and, and get involved and start changing the conversations in those groups and and actually help determine what our future is and what do we want to put on the table? What do we want to negotiate about in our regions?
9: Well, I, I think there's some things that are non-negotiable, like our sovereignty and you know, the, the need for a war crimes trial. I think they, they you don't have to have everything negotiable, right? Yeah. So these the things just sit over here. We're going to talk about a peace process. How we can accommodate everyone in this country in a reasonable, rational, responsible way, as we do, you know, and. Um, I think we've got the answers for all this. We've been very patient and um, resi- resilient, and um, such a beautiful people. My, I always want to pay my respects to all my people and, and, and their, what they've been able to do. I just, I'm always so very impressed. Wherever where, where they are, whether it's this state or any other state, I'm just, I've got so much respect for my people and their, and their, their toughness and mm. their beauty as well. So. Yeah, so we owe it to our ancestors who never had a chance. And, and um, we owe it to our children's children. We'll give them something in the future. That's what this treaty means to me. And if we can pull this off, it'll be a miracle, you know. Like, I believe in miracles. Like <laughs> it's quite more like scamo.
10: Well, that's one of the reasons why I signed up, is to, I wanted to contribute to this. I, you know, I've been schooled by a pretty strong family, And I know exactly who I am, my identity, and and what we're fighting for. So I've seen an opportunity here to actually, you know, contribute and and try and shape it. And I really feel like we've got some amazing tools now to use, but now we've got to pick them up and use them. So that's probably the next step, is getting everybody together. And, you know, because we all know about divide and conquer. Like, that's an old tactic. And I think we can, sometimes we fall into that because of the trauma that we've been under and the stresses and the fighting that we've always had to do, our activism, you know. And then sometimes you see an opportunity that feels, doesn't feel real. So I think we've really got to come together. Um, we need to do more work as an assembly to bring people together. I'm just going to say and that. And a yarn about this. Well, that's, so,
9: it's the communication factor. And, and it's the voice. We're talking mm. we, we need a voice that comes out of, the treaty, an actual media operation, right? It's the communicator. You know, we've done it right. We've done the truth, the treaty, then the voice. Well, that's the way it should work. And then if we've got a voice, we can educate people. Yeah, and the state's not interested to educate all the institutions at the universities. Yeah, they've been sitting on all this incredible information. They've never shared it. They've never educated all these racists out here. They deliberately did that. If people knew how incredibly intelligent and amazing our people are, now was racism? And if this, mm. The education system's got to play a role there. You know, there's got to be guarantees that. You know, I think, even think out of the treaty process, they should make Holocaust denial a crime in Australia. And uh, if you're a racist, we're not going to tolerate that either. And, and you know, on these sporting clubs like AFL, our game, mm. our ground, all I need to do is put a. A word say no racism won't be tolerated in this stadium. That would that would just about effectively do the job. Mm. That's all it needs. Mm. We don't tolerate racism. It's just part of the law. And, we, and you know, if, if this was um, Germany, you wouldn't be allowed to deny the Holocaust. So we've got to establish the fact that there's not been a Holocaust here. And, I, and it's pretty clear to me that there has been. You know, mm. Where are our people? Yeah. What are all them massacres? What is talk them? about a peaceful settlement? Mm. Anyway, that's yeah. we, we straighten it out. That's the way we do. You know, we, we're lawful people. We're about law and order, and um, you know, our, our long long liberty of a people testifies that we're, we're an organised, socially organised society with capability of mm-hmm. surviving through whatever. It's so uh, unreal that we're in this situation.
2: And that was a snippet from an episode of Bunjil's Fire, which aired on October 26th um, last year. You can listen to the full minute of a full 50 minute conversation on Bunjil's Fire at 3CR's website. And Bunjil Fire, Bunjil's Fire airs every Wednesday from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. And it's another great show for Wednesday listeners. To download the treaty negotiation framework, Alistair refers to head to First Peoples Assembly website at firstpeoplesvic.org, and we'll be back after another song. Here is Kucha Edwards and Denise Hudson with "A Place to Belong."
3: I'm not i <laughs>
9: <laughs> The reason I'm standing up here tonight is firstly and foremost because looking out here at this audience, I'm here because my son, Bruce, was one of the most notorious truants in the New South Wales education system. He came down as a refugee from New South Wales to Victoria to live with me About three years ago, for the first six to 12 months he was here, we tried a whole range of schools, trying to find a place where he could feel at home, where there was some degree of sensitivity, where there was something unique. I agree with the last bit, something unique. We found
5: that at Northland. Oh
3: yeah. Wanted was to let our children be. They wanted us to conform to live in the main street. Deny of our culture. It was part of their evil scheme. With the DNA of our ancestors, now blood.
2: That was a place to belong by Kucha Edwards and Denise Hudson. and um, we'll be back next week, but before that Claudia has some reminders.
0: Yeah, a reminder that Nam's Annual Invasion Day protest will begin tomorrow, at 11 a.m. at the Victorian Parliament House steps in Spring Street, Nam, Melbourne. It's tomorrow, January 26 at 11 a.m. There's also going to be a Stop the War Treaty before Voice Rally and March, starting at 10.30am. And, of course, you can tune into a live broadcast of events, as well as Black and Deadly commentary and music on 3CR's live Invasion Day broadcast tomorrow, 9 till 4pm. As always, 8.55am on the dial or via your community radio app. And you can live stream on our website, www. So that's all we've got time for today. We're going to finish up with a final song from Eschatology. This is Good Trouble. Thanks for tuning in and we'll be back with you next week.
8: My philosophy is very simple. When you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, say something, do something, get in trouble. Good travel, necessary travel.
10: Leave is the beast to live. What you see is a gift, take the present to live. What dreams are doubtful, what do you stand for? Proud people must stand so powerful. The good trouble, we run with the mouth. If you turn the cheek, let
1: the taste be sound. 3CR would like to thank our
7: sponsors Earth Greetings cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back
0: to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at
3: nibs.org.au.